data-driven podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data-Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing data skills, the Data-Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. I'm your host and the co-founder of StoryIQ, Dominic Bohan. Yesterday, Brad and I talked about harnessing data to improve employee well-being. Today, we'll continue our conversation and discuss the role of data in identifying burnout, productivity, and retention risks. Here's my conversation with Brad Smith, the Chief Science Officer at Equilibrium. Okay, Brad, welcome back to the Data Driven Podcast. That's good to be here. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you. All right, today we're going to drill a little bit deeper. So yesterday we looked in general at harnessing data to improve employee well-being. Today, let's zero in on how we can use data to identify burnout, productivity, and retention risks. Okay, uh, shall we start with burnout? So how can we identify burnout and how can we address it if we detect this uh, risk of burnout in our staff? Right, a very important question for what folks are facing. Uh, through the pandemic, what we saw is that, that people took on new tasks, they changed where they worked, they're often working later hours, but they're working remote. Uh, they're working in different places. Managers in particular took on new tasks through the pandemic, which has persisted. Now we have downsizing that's going on, particularly in the tech industry. We know that causes people to do more with less. That's what it's all about. So burnout is endemic and it's super important. Burnout is a huge, a huge risk for retention. It's one of the, the main reasons people are out there looking for new jobs. And burnout is things like exhaustion. It's like cynicism. It's like feeling like what you do at work is futile. And it all comes from extended stress and extended work, sort of high volume of work. There's validated measures of burnout in the literature. There's 20 questions that you could take that would help you see. And you see the quizzes sort of in, in the popular media on the internet and such. We basically have a predictive model that helps us identify from our 60 question assessment that helps us identify the level of burnout for people and then presents that. Uh, we don't talk to the individual about burnout explicitly and say, hey, you look like you're burned out, but we're going we're gonna to front load stuff in their journey that's going to help them sort of overcome and deal with burnout. Things like self-care, like we talked about last time, the importance of self-care. And we're going to front load things to help them uh, help them work through their burnout. But we're also going to surface that data on an aggregate basis to leaders across the company so that they can see where burnout risk is highest and lowest and then help action on it. Uh, is your model able to differentiate between, hey, this person's already burned out versus this person's at risk? If they keep going this way, they will be burned out. Absolutely. So the model, it's based, it's a, it's a, it's a score that has a range. And we know that people that are at the tip top of that score are probably already there. Um, people in the top 10% is generally what we flag. That'd be a pretty severe case of burnout. Um, people further down the spectrum, but above the, above the mean or the median, those folks would be um, in the sort of moderate risk or on their way to burnout if something isn't done, if, if skill, if school's Skills aren't taught to them. Um, and the people with lower scores, they're probably less of a worry given what we know about, about burnout levels. How accurate are the models? How can we test it and say this is actually an identified case of burnout 
and use that to ensure that the model is accurate. Yeah, so we trained these models early on in data from a separate study we conducted. So we collected, uh, we trained three sets of models really in this way. One was for burnout, one was for depression, and one was for anxiety. We had a sample of folks uh, complete our complete re our full reassessment or a full assessment at the time, which was actually significantly more questions, around 100 questions. We had them complete the Copenhagen Psychosocial Inventory Burnout Measure, so mouthful, earful, but that's that's a, a public domain measure of burnout that's pretty widely used in psycho in psychological research. And then we had them complete two other tools. One's called the Physician's Health Questionnaire Nine Item Scale, affectionately known as the PHQ-9 and the generalized anxiety disorder seven item scale affectionately known as the GAD7. And so we had data on those three sort of gold standard measures. We had data from our assessment and we basically created predictive models from our questions to mimic those three measures. And we did with pretty high degree of accuracy. So our depression and anxiety measures are like 90% accurate, 90 plus percent accurate identifying folks with at least a moderate or greater level of depression and or anxiety. The burnout model, there's not a threshold that's officially recognized as burnout, but it had a pretty high R-squared, a pretty high degree of fidelity to the, to the original measure. So we're confident that we have a, a pretty strong grip on, on identifying risks in these three areas accurately. Now, just one question I've been wanting to ask is, did you see a rise in burnout over the last few years during the pandemic? And is it trending, if it did, is it trending back down? What's the kind of macro pattern? Timely question. Absolutely, we saw a rise. And we saw a rise not only in burnout, but in, in depression and anxiety as well over the last period. If you think back to pre-pandemic periods, it's feel like it's a long time ago now, but I still go to the grocery store and like I see all those choices of cleaning supplies on the store and I still have flashbacks to what it was like before. But it seems like it was a long time in the past. So thinking back to 2020, we probably saw uh, on the depression and anxiety front, we probably saw like 10 to 12% of the population that checks in with us, which is broadly representative of what the employed population looks like at our customers. We probably saw 10 to 12%. If you look now, it's like 20 to 22%. The most recent data suggests it's about the same. So we've not seen a drop off. Burnout, the rise has probably not been quite the, the measure that we track is at that very extreme end. So top 10% highly burned out folks. That has trended up. It's not trended up as much, but in none of those three measures, depression, anxiety, burnout, have we seen like things are okay now. So it's back to pre-pandemic levels. You know, pandemic was one thing in the U.S., sort of political and social events, uh, war in Ukraine, now war in the Middle East, all of those things. It seems like we're not we're not cut, getting much of a break in terms of environmental stressors. Climate change is underlying all that, especially for younger people. So it's like we replaced one stressor with another over the last couple of years, and we're really not seeing a sigh of relief yet in the data that we track. Okay, that's interesting. A little bit surprising because I thought, now the pandemic's over, we might have seen some improvement there. And so some of the geopolitical, global issues, very difficult for anyone to do anything about, right? It's totally beyond our control. It's beyond our employees, employers' control, but could still contribute to burnout, anxiety, and depression. What do you recommend for people that are stressed by just the, the state of the world and what they're seeing on the news and how that affects them at work? Yeah, so... 
you're right. There's no cure. If if there were a uh, a data driven intervention for uh, geopolitical and other events, somebody could make a lot of money. But really, I think that uh, you know, there's no cure. There's no app for that, as they say. I think there the the, the potential tools that are that are helpful are the same things we teach at the core of the product, which is reframing, like understanding you know, when you get that feeling of being tied up in knots and anxious about what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in, in the Ukraine and what's happening with the election in the United States next year, understanding what you can, you know, what's under your control and what's not under your control, right? We teach that skill. There's some things that we can be stressed about that we can control the, the solution. Like, I'm stressed about my test. Well, I can study for it. And so that's what you do. You do functional things that help you reduce that stress. And then there's things that we're stressed out about that are bad, but they're out of our control. And so is it healthy for us to, to ruminate on others? Or is it helpful for us to, I don't know, practice mindfulness, to think about sort of what's in the moment? That'd be one thing we talk about in the product when people are dealing with things that are maybe out of their control is to practice mindfulness. So we have a whole core of meditation tools in the product. We teach, you know, insights drawn from the mindfulness-based stress reduction tools and programs that are out there. So, you know, I, I wish I could say, oh, it's it's on, on, uh, on the... It, on the button at the top right of your app, it's not there. Uh, I wish it were, but but I think that the the core skills that we teach in terms of you know teaching people about metacognition um, can be helpful in at least attenuating that, even if we can't solve those uh, tough big issues. And so you must have significant data on this, so you'd see who actually uses the, the product or who gets referred to someone and do you see a difference in the change over time in their levels of uh, anxiety burnout depression absolutely yep yeah. so like we, we do offer that reassessment at 90 days uh, we see changes in a couple different ways so one measure we track is uh is resilience change and what we see is that in general over time in the areas where people struggle the most or their drags the four resilience factors where they struggle the most we see about a 30 percent improvement in those four areas so that's what we call our resilience indicator index or rii so people are improving resilience and we actually have peer-reviewed publication that shows the more hours you spend in resilience training over the lifetime of your engagement which can be a long time so it's not like people spend hours a day doing this the more hours people spend over their lifetime of product engagement, the more resilience improvement that we see, the more stress reduction we see. So we do see a pretty strong dosing effect. The other areas where we see change, you asked about depression, anxiety, burnout. On balance, we see about a 13% reduction in depression symptoms. So 13% fewer people at that reassessment uh, meet the criteria for moderate or worse depression. We see about a 20% reduction in anxiety in the same way. And burnout is, again, in that sort of double digits, 15 to 20%, 15 to 20% range of reduction in risk. Okay, so pretty significant and pretty good bang for buck, it sounds like, because the product is designed, it sounds like, to be a minimal time investment. Yeah, the goal really is to get people in a couple times a week. And if that's reading an email, if that's in, encountering a blog uh, on the product, we have a weekly blog series. If it's attending a, a live webinar, which we have once a month, if it's working through a skill module, a skill building module, if it's doing, you know, writing down three great things as a practice activity, we really aim to get people in a couple times a week or about eight to nine times a month. 
And really that is, we're talking about two to three minutes a pop. So we're not talking about spending hours a week doing this. Um, and from my own sort of personal life experience and from what I hear from talking to members and hearing from members, that we're really looking to turn it, like to have the light bulb moments where people are like, oh yeah. And so if we can turn on a couple of those light bulbs for people, it's not like it takes, uh, you know, it's not like learning to play the banjo. My daughter learned to play the banjo and she's worked for years perfecting her banjo skills. You know, learning to play the banjo, there's not a light bulb moment where you're like, oh yeah, that's how you do it. And then all of a sudden, boom, you can play the banjo. I think that the growth module uh, model for for building resilience and, and self-improvement is more like a series of stair steps where that light bulb turns on and people sort of take a leap and then they may coast along, maybe have something else that sort of goes wrong in their life. They need to come back and top up. And we really see that in terms of pattern and engagement. So people come in, they'll take the assessment, they might work on a few things, they might go away for a month or two months and then something happens in their life or at work or there's stress at work because downsizing, they come back in and they sort of top off and they may make another leap up. So the engagement patterns suggest or sort of supportive of that idea of light bulb moments turning on. Okay. So high impact from these light bulb moments, we see maybe for burnout, 20, 30% improvement in those scores when we check in with them. I think he said about 90 days later, if they've been consistently using the product. And then are we able to trace that improvement in burnout risk score to productivity, employee engagement, job performance, the things that the employer is going to be most focused on. Absolutely. So I mean, there are a couple different ways we do it. So one way we do it is through sort of secondary analysis. So we have access to eligibility files for all of our customers, almost all of our customers. We can look at two points in time. Let's go back a year. Let's see who was enrolled in MeQ and who was not enrolled in MeQ. Let's trace forward a year, 12 to 15 months. Let's see who's left the company, who's no longer on the eligibility file. Let's create a pretty sophisticated design. We'll do a match case control study, um, identify people who are in the program, people who are not in the program, match them up on everything from gender and tenure and age, job work location, job title, what have you, everything we can put our hands on, create a match sample, and then look at turnover. We've done like 12 to 15 of those studies over the last couple of years. Consistently, they show that people that are engaging with MeQ have about an 18% lower actual turnover rate than people who don't. So, you know, that's like hit hit people over the head. So, you know, get people into MeQ is one thing. The other place that we go is uh, a couple other places we go is one was we'll pick up data sources from uh, from our customers who are interested in specific areas. So we looked at disability data just recently. So the idea of let's, let's exclude disability for maternity reasons, which you know, it's a different sort of a different beast, as it were. Let's look at physical health dis- uh, disability leaves. Let's look at mental health disability leaves. Let's look at them over time. Again, pretty sophisticated match case control study. And let's look at MeQ participants disability experience, how many they have, how long they last. And let's look at a match sample of non-participants. And what you see there is in the data that we just got in from a third party that conducted analysis is that MeQ members both have fewer disability leaves, so lower incidence of disability, and then shorter duration. So getting people back to work faster and having less people go out for disability, both mental health and not mental health, those things hit the bottom line in a pretty quick and obvious way. 
We also have data on sales performance. Resilient, more resilient salespeople tend to finish higher in terms of meeting the quotas that they have for their annual sales budget. Um, so beyond that, we have relationships. We know about the relationship between each of our 18 resilience factors and things like productivity impairment or presenteeism, absenteeism, so missing work for reasons other than PTO, and then turnover risk. So because of those relationships we know, and I don't think any of your listeners want to hear me talk about regression analysis, so I'm going to not go deep on that. But basically through sort of sophisticated multivariate modeling, we're able to understand the relationship between how much people change on a specific factor and how that changes their risk of presenteeism at work. So presenteeism, for people who may not be sort of in the lingo, presenteeism is the idea that you're at work and you're physically at work, but you're really not working to your 100% potential. And so we, the measures for that are self-report, you know, how much does your stress impact your ability to get your work done? A lot of people sort of turn up their noses at self-report data, but it correlates very well with actual productivity in terms of, you know, other studies that have been conducted. And what we see is that, you know, moving the, moving the needle on people's resilience factor scores moves the needle on reducing presenteeism, reducing that productivity impairment pretty significantly. So, you know, the best, if you're talking, it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a benefits person, we can often talk through our ROI model. If you're talking to a chief financial officer, probably, you know, going to not be that interested in your ROI model, but a lot more interested in, hey, look, these folks have 20% reduction in, in turnover risk or actual turnover, or these salespeople are more productive, or disability leave is shorter, or even healthcare claims. We've done healthcare claims studies and see about $300, $300 per member per year lower spend among those who are engaged with BQ compared to those who are not. So the connections are either sort of uh, roundabout through ROI modeling or very direct through the case studies that we've conducted with various business type outcomes. Okay, so regardless of who you're talking to, you can be data-driven in showing the impact. Absolutely. We, and, and we have to be. I mean, I know it's the topic of your of your podcast, and it's what we would call table stakes. That if you can't if you can't come in and explain what your value proposition, show it in a compelling way with data from a customer like you're talking to, like the prospect you're talking to, you can't. That conversation will never progress. So those are you know sh having the data to bear out your outcomes is pivotal to to what we do every day. Anything else that you wanted to include in this uh, last episode that you wanted to share? I think it was a good, I think you had good questions and I think we're good. So Brad, thanks for sharing about what you're able to do for companies. Is the product also available to individuals who just want to use it? So for individuals, we started out in that consumer world and it's just, it's hard work. Consumer selling direct to consumer is hard work, given churn and all that kind of stuff and billing. And we found that our sweet spot and the sweet spot that our board and investors want us to be in is in that. Uh, sort of mid-sized to large company market. So if you're an individual and this sounds really exciting to you, get in touch and we'll be glad to tell you how to how to forward on VQ to your HR department at your favorite employer. Thanks, Brad. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to Brad Smith, Chief Science Officer at Equilibrium, for joining us. If you'd like to contact Brad, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter where his handle is at Meequilibrium, or visit his company website, meequilibrium.com. One link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head on over to datadrivenpod.com. We've 
We've got summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. Hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. But remember, until next time, when it comes to data, less is more.